peace. This is Cheyenne Salah thanking you all for watching and listening to my new podcast. The door is now open to my brave new world. So sit back and relax and let me share with you a little bit of this thing I call life. <laughs> yeah, baby. Let's go. It's so fun. What's up, everybody? This is Cheyenne Salah. This is my new podcast show. I'm super excited about it. You know, for anyone that's going to be watching this show or any of our uh, future episodes, uh, you're going to get a lot of love going on, man. What I mean by that is a lot of reality, a lot of uh, things that I've gone on personally uh, in my own professional and personal world, uh, all of my endeavors in music and culture, uh, art, entrepreneurship, uh, the friends that I've amassed in a 25-year career, and some bleeding from early childhood and just coming up as a young black man in America uh, is going to be fused into this show. So I welcome you all to my show, Life. Okay, so my first guest today is my dude, one of Federway's own. I'm a Federway native. Um, he's one of the baddest young brothers out here, period. Um, it's a phenomenal thing to see young cats come up and choose a path. And, and do what they got to do in it and remain true and remain themselves in the process, yet still perform the job. So my man, our newly elected uh, 30th district rep in the state of Washington, Federway Zone, Jesse Johnson, is in the building, man. I salute you and welcome you to the show, brother. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. How's the 2021 going for you so far, man? You know, a few days in, it, it feels like we're kind of all over the place. Like we're getting ready for a session starting Monday. Uh, big session, so this is the obviously. First session of the year. First session of the year. Yep. So it's it's really my first session as an elected uh, state rep because I was appointed last year. So obviously I had to start a little bit late in the session, and so this I'm excited for this. Okay, so let's walk that back. I don't know how many people you know really truly know or recall the fact that you got appointed in last year, which is really your first go at it, and then you you actually had to go through the campaign this year and put your butt back in the seat. Um, but what was that like last year, man, being appointed? What was, the, what was the situation and the circumstance that brought that about? So politics is interesting, right? So we had a current uh, rep that actually ran for Congress, uh, my predecessor. And so they needed to fill the seat really quickly right before Christmas. And so I kind of got called up by one of our uh, county um, reps and, and said, are you going to apply? And I said I would. So there was 19 people that applied for the seat. Um, I was selected after a long uh, process. We had to have our local legislative district uh, precinct committee officers select the top five. And then the uh, county council selected the, the appointee and I was selected. So wow. it, was, it, was pretty, it was pretty crazy, a fast, uh, a fast time transition. Man, that's crazy. So 19 different heads could have filled the slot. Um, I'm curious because, you know, I know politics is what it is to the general public right now. 
right? And, and you know, in recent times, it's become hot. And I think that's really just a consequence of the importance of community really uh, starting to, you know, take shape and form over the last decade or so. But when you think about, you know, the, the nuances, like the, the context in and around the political scheme, the whole landscape, you know, what is your opinion on how much of our community is really like aware, like everyone pushes the whole, you know, vote, 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 gotta get out and vote, gotta get out and vote. But I oftentimes wonder where's the information or the education behind all these seats and all these positions mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the nuances that happen before and after the vote. You know, can you can you shed a little light on what that was for you that even drew your interest to wanting to get into politics? And then like what are the, some of the things that are going on that that can cause people to become aware of those nuances we're talking about? I've always been an observant person and one thing I noticed growing up was like local issues and, and, and issues that matter to our community um, were like talking to barbershops at basketball games, but it didn't elevate to the point of folks running for office. Right. And so you look at our representation in Federal Way, as you know, we've had this uh, legacy of um, leadership that did not reflect the community. Um, we didn't have our first black uh, city council member until 2012. And so um, it's really interesting to see our history and yet our community is changing. We're so diverse, most diverse in the state. And so I was really drawn to the fact that um, these issues are talked about. We have brilliant people in our community, but no one to be that kind of master communicator and elevate those issues at the local level, the state level. And then you look at our democracy, like we have a federal government. We also have a state government with a lot of power, a local government with power. Um, We have local uh, commissions with power. So we have so many levels in our democracy. So why not get involved and start to have some uh, some some say over what's happening in our lives? Right. Was it was it a a particular moment in your journey where, you know, was it was it uh, a particular politician? Was it a moment in time? Like what what made you say to yourself, I man, this is it. I got to jump in this game. It was really, I mean, honestly, I was uh, really excited about President Obama in 2008. I was a senior in high school. I remember um, seeing him speak at Key Arena. He came to Seattle and I got to, my dad took me out there to see him speak. And then um, I just was like, wow, like someone that actually kind of resonated with my life running for president and to learn more about and do some research on his journey as a community organizer, a lawyer, attorney. But I think um, that part was like, okay, I'm interested in politics. But actually, ironically, it was 2016 and seeing like the pain and hurt when um, the current president was elected, that's kind of what told me, okay, I should get involved in some way. And a lot of the young people I was working with as an educator were like, yeah, you should get involved, we'll help you out. You know, and being from this community and really growing up here and understanding the issues, um, I thought to myself, why not have uh, myself run and really like make this grassroots. Like this has to be something where the community is pushing me up and holding me accountable. Otherwise I don't want to do it. And so that's something that I thought about. So you, so you kind of had a, a uh, compulsion, if you would, or maybe even an affinity that, that the community um, required, you know, some kind of collective involvement. Cause I think that's what's, you know, what's a trip for me when I think about you in your journey and, um, you know, watching you progress and, and knowing the landscape the way I know it and, and being involved in community the way I've been involved with it uh, for the majority of my adult life, 
it's one of those things where it's just not what everyone's normally hip to. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. For many years, I used to tell cats all the time, like, you know, it's not, it wasn't cool. Like community wasn't, when I was getting involved in community, it wasn't the cool thing to do. You know, going in schools, raising the lights of, uh, of our youth um, from the street to the schools, man, and the playgrounds and all the other uh, extracurricular activities that's out there for them, primarily in sports, being a former athlete, being an entertainer, and marrying those worlds and trying to get that evolution going uh, from the ground floor. But the political side was always just kind of this thing that was over here. And I had dealings in it and I knew people in it and I'd gotten involved with campaigns and kind of knew the nuances around it. But our general community is like, it's hard to determine whether or not they're just already turned off because the culture was turned off for so long. And, and whether that's from the trauma of the 60s or the trauma of Jim, Jim Crow, back, all the way back to the slave trade or, or what have you, or it's just being desensitized to the hoopla and the hyperbole and all the political riffraff that goes back and forth. What do you think was your edge? Like, how, how did you band-aid the disenfranchisement between the community and the political landscape? Well, like you said, like one thing I noticed growing up in Federal Way, like our heroes were the the sports legends, like like yourself, folks that that actually came back to Federal Way after going and making it in, in music or sports. And I saw the one industry that we really weren't at or reflected in was politics at a local level. And so um, there's a lot of examples across the country when you look at activism um, of folks getting involved and, and coming back to their community and doing good work. But when it comes to policy, it's like, those folks usually leave and kind of never come back or they're here in the community, but they're not really here. Um, they're representing different interests once they get elected. And so I thought about like, how can we make sure that, um, you know, we have people that actually are of community and continue to be of community as we progress through not only when our election cycle is, but once we win and we're in office and we have to do policy, like we come back to community, we're available, we're present, we're heard. And that's a space that I thought was missing. And so I, I kind of thought, you know, um, I'm someone that, that listens. Um, I really feel like um, you gotta be a good listener to be a good elected official. And so I wanted to be someone that really heard the community and really experienced and was proximate to the pain of the community because it's a community I grew up in and I know very well. And so that's kind of what was like drawn to me. That was like the moment where I said, okay, I can actually do this because you know, sometimes it, it, that's the step. It's like, can you actually run? Um, you could say all you want about what the problems in the community, but actually running, that's another story because it's a lot of, uh, it, it's a new space that I wasn't used to. So um, once I made that decision, I felt good. What do you think was the, you know, as you, as you began the journey, what were some of the initial things that, you know, kind of were in the, in the way of deterring you, if you would. Because I think a lot of the stuff that goes on in our community, and, and uh, I say this with a, uh, uh, with all due respect, you know, I love our people. I love our people, but we are a very uniquely, <laughs> beautifully complex people. And we have, we have things we are carrying in heritage and lineage um, and through suffrage. Mm -hmm. um, in some cases through redemption and through idealism as well. Um, but there's a lot of fear that tends to permeate 
moving from you know this space to this space. It's become a lot easier when you think about athletics and entertainment because there's now programming, there's now marketing value. Or like you said, there's reference to the old heads that, that did it before you, that they're now doing this and doing that. You know, you saw the commercials, you could see the brands, you could see us winning in certain circles. And so that, um, you know, creates dynamics and creates uh, a need for infrastructure at the youth level, uh, if not nothing else, for kids to start participating and start understanding how to conquer fear and get reward and, you know, for, from their efforts. But in this, in this regard, where the stakes are high, where, you know, you get voted in or voted out, um, and there's some degree of voting, the community doesn't see as such before the vote, where it's like, you know, people have to say, man, we're backing you and, and this is our guy and, you know, we're endorsing him or I'm endorsing him or so on and so forth. Like, what deterrences were there that had you thinking maybe from time to time, if at all, man, is this, is this really the, the thing I want to do? Quite a bit. I mean, one thing I'll say, though, um, that I appreciate, and I'm sure you know, growing in Federal Way, like you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, um, especially as a young black male in this city, because there's so many um, um, uh, cultures and just like you got to deal with a lot of different types of people. And so I was very used to that coming from this city. And I can go to a chamber meeting where I'm the only black person in there and speak to uh, Chamber of Commerce folks and, and feel comfortable. Right. Just like I can go to the barbershop, just like I can, go, I can go to a school board meeting or city council meeting and speak. And so I felt you know, fine doing that. But I think like the deterrence for me was like, once I get there, am I gonna be able to come through mm. when it comes to actual real sustainable policy? Because I know community is done with tokenism. They're done with symbolic gestures of like, okay, we got somebody in there we want to see real transformational change. And I know that that was my biggest like fear was like, am I going to be able to come through? And so that's why I said throughout my campaign, like as an elected official, I can't, um, I'm not the end all. I can't come up with everything. I have to work with community throughout the process um, because it's a community led effort. Um, it's an inside outside game working in the system, just like having advocates on the outside of the system to, to advocate for change. We got to work together in partnership. So um, I knew I had to do that and work with community along the way. Otherwise, it's going to be you're kind of playing hero ball like in basketball. You know, if, if you're playing hero ball and you have LeBron scoring 50 points, but you got zero bench points, right. you're probably not going to win. So I, I knew I had to do that in politics, too. That's interesting that you that you put it that way. Um, <laughs> not just because not just because I appreciate LeBron's get that <laughs> personally, but uh, just the fact that I just don't think that there's uh, in general on the street, I'm just talking street level. And that is all of the culture from the youth, um, and in some cases to those that are responsible for the youth, including teachers and uh, education administrators and coaches and so on and so forth. Like these, these nuances in the political landscape that are in place to appropriate and cause and deliberate the potential of change happening at a policy level it's a very, very deep thing. But, you know, it's like the ingredients of how those things go and and who's involved in all of that way making just seems to be, you know, it's like the brand ain't there. Like the hype is there. And we've seen it. We've seen it forever in entertainment and sports where it's like you get all the highlights, your fed highlights, highlights. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you get the video and, you know, 
the three, you know, the, the singles hots, three minutes and 30 seconds, and you're getting all the flash and everything, but you don't get the two weeks it took to shoot it and edit it and, you know, permit it properly and go, all the production, all the value that goes into making that thing happen. And so I think the community is is sitting at possibly by default a great loss. Like, what are some of the things that you, and I know, because I know you personally, but since this is accessible to the world, like, how would you introduce to culture and community around the country and around the world for that matter, um, tying the knot between what makes politics go and whether or not the community really understands it and can really connect with it, right? Like, beyond the go vote and beyond the, we need to elect so-and-so and get so-and-so out. And all. Like, what are some of the things that you've taken upon yourself to ingratiate yourself with the community differently, to give them a little bit of the kindling that's going on uh, inside the political world? Well, I think about um, the fact that historically, we've never had a real seat at the table as black mm, people. We, that's deep. We have been um, used and tokenized, again, that word for a long time for the plight of whether it be democratic issues or values or progressive issues or values. And we've had, we've always known we have to legislate our rights at the political level and then enforce those rights on the ground level too. It's not just, just one. So um, it, it's an inside outside game. That's always been the case. That's why Dr. King was so effective mm -hmm. uh, working politically as well as in community. And I knew that um, as an elected official, although I am this voice for our community, I also have to be intellectually humble and have a humility to know I don't have all the answers. Sure. And so I need to be present with community and let them know, yes, I'm your elected official, but also I don't feel like I'm any more brilliant than the next person in our community. I just, my role is to be an effective communicator to get those issues elevated at the political level, but the ideas and the innovation and the creativity have to come from the community. And it's my role to take that baton and get it across the finish line. So it's, it's a full four by one track meet, so to speak. I know you're a track guy too. Yeah. We got to have someone in the first leg, the second, third, and my role is the fourth leg to get it across the finish line. Interesting. So then how does, I love that because what you're saying is you're responsible for, for lack of a better term, promoting and marketing and advertising and negotiating the plight of the community, right? Absolutely. But there's something in there that the community is responsible for with respect to if if miss if mrs brown um is struggling and has xyz hardships and can't pay for this or can't get that um and is encumbered deeply how does miss brown or a family member of mrs brown get the message of what's going on and how they're being impacted what is that next relay leg you know to get to you so um, I actually had this conversation with some students the other day, uh, and I think it's really knowing that um, you can communicate with me. Um, and, you know, my email is publicly accessible, but a lot of folks are like, never think, think to email their legislator or just, you know, uh, my, my phone number is publicly accessible, at least my legislative one. So it's important to know that those modes of communication, social media is really important these days. So people will hit me up on Facebook Messenger like, hey, my unemployment didn't come through. Can you help me out? Right. And I'm like, OK, this is my legislative email. Let's go through it the, the official way and we can get that processed and I can elevate that issue 
um, in, in, in the state level. But I think it's important to know that we're accessible, at least I am and I try to be, and I know other electeds um, try to be as well. And so it's important to know that. But I think also with that, you have to have this power, there's, no, there's power in numbers, right? So Miss um, Brown may be able to say, this is my issue, but she's gonna need a civil rights advocate with her. She's gonna need, once we get that issue taken to the next level, we're gonna need more people to really raise um, quote unquote hell and get that taken care of because um, the system and the institution, um, it works in a way to not help or benefit folks that need it the most. It works in a way to help folks that already have what they need. That's the way our, our, our democracy, because it is a, a capitalistic society um, and money talks. And I think right now what we're seeing in our democracy is that the people that already have what they need are getting more and more benefits. That's why we're seeing record profits during this pandemic with corporations and CEOs while small businesses are going under because institution doesn't have the ear of the everyday person. And we need to change that. And that's part of why I'm here to make sure that we change that institution so it reflects um, the, the needs of working folks. I love that. And I think that that's, that that's, although I love it and appreciate it, there's, there's, a, there's a puzzling component to that, right? Like that there's, this is America. And let's just get, you know, let's just get gritty with it. It is what it is here. My mindset is this country has always shown what it gives a damn about or what it doesn't. And whether that's from a broad, vast level or that's from a microscopic local kind of level or experience, um, it, it doesn't do a great job of hiding its, uh, <laughs> its intention. Um, now, that's not to say that in those intentions, there's not some degree of, uh, you know, potential of, of people being compassionate or sure. wanting to do better for all. But going to your point, if all does not have a representative at the table, and if all includes some that are lesser than the greater sum, then that lesser sum is going to have a less effect, even if they're at the table, because the numbers are not going to support um, the, uh, the same you know, respect for the need, if you would. And so getting things done becomes this, you know, this cycle that seems to be this never-ending, self-perpetuating, uh, we give a damn, but there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, you know, kind of scenario. How do you, how do you go about changing that when systematically you know what you're up against, but we don't. You don't have the numbers. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have the percentages to make it. You know, paramount in the minds of most of these waymakers to put us in, in priority positions. Or if you do it, you might have to water this down and you might have to, you know, shave this off over here or Mrs. Brown's plight's got to get kind of shrink wrapped into another package and talked about this way. You know what I mean? Like, how, how do you fish through all that when um, when that's part of the game that you got to play politically? How do you hold the authenticity of the plight of the people when you're at the table? That, that's a great question, and I think it's something we're, we're figuring out. I'm going to use an analogy. I think I remember uh, 
my junior year in high school, I was I was trying out for varsity basketball and I went to the coach and I said, what do I need to do to make the team? Hmm. And he said, you need to find your your niche. I wasn't a star like you, so I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have it all. But uh, he's like, you need to find your niche, whether it's defense, whether it's assists, whether it's getting scrappy, whether it's just cheering on the bench. What is your thing that you can do that no one else can on the team? And I think it's the same for our community. Like you said, we talk about our plight. We have to figure out what our role in an American capitalistic democracy is because our democracy may get better and may get more progressive, but it's always going to be what it is. And we need to find our role as a community in that, as a black community, to say, you can't do this, what we can do. And I think we found that in history a lot of times. And once we did, we saw change, right? We saw reconstruction. We saw what happened with Dr. King and the civil rights movement. Um, even most recently, we saw what Black Lives Matter. That's why Seattle is defunded their police by half a million dollars. And so I think that we need to do something similar in the economic space as well to say, let's come together as a community. Let's do for ourselves. And then government's going to have to match that. Because right now, when we look at our budgets at a state level, for example, we're caught up in like I would call the um, welfare budgets. The most of our money as a community is in Department of Corrections, mm -hmm. DSHS, uh, Department of Children, Youth, Families. But all the money of where the state investments are going is in commerce, it's in climate change, climate justice, it's in uh, commercial property, uh, transportation, and we're not in those spaces. And so we're gonna have to really redefine ourselves, I think, to fit within the system and still agitate from the outside and say, the system needs to change and hold our electeds accountable to change it. I like that, I like that term, agitate. Because I think that that's, that's an important component for stimulating conversation, potentially stimulating change altogether. Um, but, you know, being in a, in a world, in a society right now, where it's so evident and it's so clear what we're up against. Um, and I'm going to say that in all spaces, everyone, er, this is not just for the culture. This is just black culture. This is, I don't, there's white people that have found the fence line and the, and, and, and the rooftops of the ceilings in their own lives where they're saying, it's a wrap, ain't nowhere to go. We fed up. Latinos, they have found those fence lines and those rooftops fed up. There's nowhere to go. You even got new immigrants who came here for all the betterment and all the privilege and all the opportunity and potential that have found their own fence lines and, and rooftops where they said, man, we're, you know, we're hamstrung. We can't move. We need to be able to do this, need to be able to do that. So it's like, what do you do when the collective is woke from within themselves? Mm -hmm. You got NFL woke, you got NBA woke, mm -hmm. you got MLB woke, you got, and everyone's operating differently. So you're not just down to the culture of like ethnicity, right? You're all the way down the point of interest of like, this is what I do, this is my trade, this is my dream. And here's how it's affecting the ecosystem here with what I care about, regardless of what I look like or who I believe in. I'm a little agitated, if you would, um, with respect to how to even filter out and properly distill what way do you go? How do you properly lead people 
when that's the dynamic that you're up against. Yeah. Um, and even though there's bright, brilliant young stars moving into this direction, um, like yourself in the political landscape to cause change to happen, it, it, it still seems like, man, it just, it's not, it's yeah. not fast enough. It's not fast enough. And now you're in a pandemic and, and, and COVID is hitting. And now you got um, people dealing with immeasurable issues coming to the forefront. Because one thing I could say our community understands very well is a hard time and a struggle and the feeling of being without resources, that awareness of just kind of living with that and knowing it's going to be a struggle just to get this or get that. Now we're in an environment where that's kind of trickled to everybody on some level. There's this heightened sense of anxiety. Then you got folks that completely are contrary. Talk about agitation. Like, you know, you, you got some cats that's just all the way on, on, on another side of the fence, like, Everything y'all talking about is bullshit. Everything that y'all saying, that ain't even real. That's fake news. That's this over here. I'm not, like, what do you do? And you can't just say that they don't matter. You can't just say, you know, no pun intended, but you can't just say that life don't matter or that voice don't matter or that opinion don't matter for the mere fact that they got the right to vote. Yep. So what do you, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm trying to get in a space with you in this conversation to say, what in the hell is anyone supposed to do when everyone's got the right to announce their disposition and everyone's going to feel some kind of way about it? And who's first? Who gets priority? How do they get priority? When we all know that just because you're at the table doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be able to put together a meal to bring back home. Right. Right. Talk to me about that. You say it so well. I mean, I think we are in a point in time where um, kind of like I was saying earlier, symbolism doesn't, doesn't matter as much like uh, identity politics, which we've experienced. We, you know, it's like, that's why this year we saw in Seattle, the first uh, LGBTQ mayor, the first uh, native or indigenous superintendent of schools and the first black police chief all resigned in a matter of months. Because at this point, it's literally like, you're gonna do for us to make sure that we progress as a community or you're out of here. Right. And, or we're gonna make it hell to the point where you're gonna wanna leave yourself. So I think, I think right now what we need to do as a community is come together and strategize. I love what Killer Mike said a few, a few months back when he said plot plan, uh, strategize, organize, and then mobilize. Sometimes we skip steps and we're going to, okay, we're already organized, let's mobilize, but we never had a real strategy in place, mm -hmm. you know what I mean, to, to, to implement or to say, this is what we want. Um, we need to make sure that legislators know this is where the investments must go. So once we start having decisions like this year in 2021, we have to uh, dig ourselves out of a $2 billion shortfall as a state and as we're doing it, we need to put in place new investments to help community and those that are most marginalized in our budget process. But we need to say as a community, this is where the, those uh, resources will go and have agreement on that, which is tough to do with our community. As you know, agreement can be tough because there's so much need. There's so much, uh, you know, 
just, um, you know, feelings of distrust with one another as well, not only the government, but just within ourselves. And so we need to really come together and strategize around what that looks like. And then we can finally say, okay, um, you know, we have nine black uh, legislators in Olympia now. Last year we have four. We more than doubled in size. We can actually make some good change as a black members caucus and do some things for our community at a state level. And what do you think that that was a result of, you know, to have those nine members now? Well, what, what was it previously? It Prior, was four members it last was four. year. So I was one of four and now we're at nine. Now we're at nine. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what were the efforts you think that, you know, was it, was it, was it the picketing? Was it the, the marching? Was it the protesting? What, what campaigns have you found to be most effective in getting the information out as to, you know, who you are and what, what the priority uh, issues are that you're going to be running on to help navigate the culture forward? You hear a lot about racial equity and racial justice. And I think um, we were in this DEI, as you know, diversity, equity, inclusion era for so long where it's just like, like I said, have a seat at the table or you have someone that looks like me. Now it's to the point where it's no anti-racism, racial reckoning, racial justice. What are you going to do to make sure that we have money in our pockets? We are not getting killed by police and we are a part of the discussion. Um, so that's where it's come to. And I think people that speak to those issues in their campaigns are the ones that won this year. And a lot of them were black women. Um, black women came and ran in highest numbers ever in our state and won. Um, my new seatmate's a black woman. And I think it's going to be interesting to see now that we're in the system for the first time with this amount of numbers, what we can actually do together. Interesting. I, I, um, I used to deal with that word, man. That equity is a... Uh... It's an elusive, you know, term for people in my space. You know, when I'm talking like from a creative artist and creative entrepreneur landscape, business ownership, equity is a matter of uh, the appreciation of value. It's about ownership. It's about uh, being able to be in a position to foster value and innovate idealism and in modern sense and in a general sense around a community diversity and equity has just been about you get to participate um you know you get to get on the field or you get to come try out you know with everybody and and the conversation doesn't feel like it's about hey you can own a business right you can buy a franchise you can, um, you know, you can start your own auto mechanic shop. You can become, uh, you know, your own lawn and maintenance service. Um, you can do this or do this. Or, it's always about being included into kind of the job space. Like how, what do you think needs to happen for the connotation of what equity really represents? Um, this, that sense of freedom, that economic freedom that that ability to innovate and develop and and do things for yourself and your family, um, that sense of sovereignty, if you would, um, and even old you know Americana idealism and all the stuff that's kind of wrapped behind it. Everything that we cherish from the heroic level of those that are successful, um, and whether you want to talk to your, your Jeff Bezoses or your Elon Musks or you want to talk your your Magic Johnsons or your Michael Jordans that's the equity I know. That's ownership, right? 
That's thriving versus surviving. Um, how do we legislate opportunity for economic development and growth? And what's going on right now in, in your space and in your world on a local level to be able to drive that conversation home? It, it's a good point. Um, equity really should be opportunity and really economic opportunity when you get even deeper. Um, because we think of it as access sometimes, and that's not necessarily true because we can all walk into a bank. It doesn't, we're accessible to the bank. It doesn't mean we're gonna actually get that loan, right? To, to start our business. And so we need to change the systems that are saying to the bank, okay, this person doesn't deserve the, the loan more than, than this person, or they, or they do, vice versa. And it's really based off a system of, unfortunately, white supremacy, black inferiority, which is, has, has a, a dangerous legacy in our, in our country's history. And so we need to change that. And I think at this point, like it's really saying we are going to almost put economic opportunity in the hands of the black community because for generations they were they were done wrong by the system. Right. And we need to be able to, to create intergenerational wealth. And that's when we can re actually see real equity, I think probably won't come for it for another 25, 50 years after what we do now. And we see you know, the outcomes later with our own kids and our grandkids, will we be able to achieve real equity in 2021? That's going to be the tail down the line. And I, and I think that that's, that's just an important conversation to have because I know in dealing with it from the business community, there are so many hurdles for black men and women, and I, I would even dare say maybe people of color in general, but certainly speaking from my own experience, that the the uh, the scale and the grade of how one comes to being deemed with the appropriate merit to say, we got you or we can invest in you or we can give you a loan or we can give you this or get behind you. And I've often put it in, in joking that, man, with all the stuff I've done in my life, if I was a white dude, it would, be, you know, it'd just be crazy. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I've talked to so many other, you know, brothers and sisters and, and kind of had that conversation. And for me, it's even, it's at the negotiation table for me because I do advocate, I am an activist in these economic uh, conversations because I, I believe at the end of the day, they are extremely important for the health and the growth of a culture and, and its community. Um, but I'm, I, I'm still baffled by how little conversation is politicized. Uh, how many of us are, are owning franchises um, or owning homes or owning land or being given startup capital. You think about all the realms of where investment capital is generated. You got you know, venture capital groups and structure finance groups and private equity groups and private banks. And you got the whole loan system in each little neighborhood bank. And I'm at the space where it's like, who's giving black people loans? Absolutely. Just who? Just, can we identify? I, I, if, it, if, if it's U.S. Bank, is it who's done it? Who's in the last year given somebody black a standard business loan to launch their business? And what was the measurables used, you know, to be able to do it? And how come this isn't a conversation? And how come more of us aren't aren't starting businesses and and pursuing this space? And so I, I'm curious how you look on that. Um, you know, be, being in your seat, and I'm not trying to bend you one way or the other. I'm just kicking you a real conversation. Not that we ain't had it before, but for the sake of the people, like, how do you see the importance of banks' involvement, um, 
and uh, venture capital, the private equity space, uh, when it comes to playing a role in the community, because your job is what it is. And we all know that it is what it is, right? And so it's like, that's a slow rowing boat and you're gonna have to do some things and the way you gotta advocate and bring things to the table and negotiate it through and present it to get voted on, that's just what it is. That's the system for politics. But what about some of these other surrounding resource um, avenues that should be participating in evolving community efforts, right? How do we get them to the table to become one of those relay players? And what, and what do you think about that? Um, it's a great question. I mean, I, I'm, I'm honestly, I feel like we haven't been innovative enough as a government system. We we really kind of feel like we have all the answers. And unfortunately, what it's led to is the private industry is going to do what they're going to do. And they're going to take advantage of the system we've created because we don't want to lose that private revenue that's coming in. That's why, you know, we have the most regressive tax system in the country in Washington state, along with California and Silicon Valley, because we have all these tech companies. We don't want to lose them. So we're not going to tax them. We got to figure it, figure out a way to progress monitor what they're doing and how to make sure that that transitions into the community is still holding our place, you know, in the state, but private industry is taken over. And so how do we make sure that with, you know, the, these changes that are coming with, with the tech industry, we really evolve our economy so that it makes sense and it works for folks that are at the bottom. And so that's a very difficult thing to do. I think, unfortunately, what it's going to mean is um, we're going to have to look at having some type of, uh, you know, um, equity lens when we're talking about um, policy and say, if you're not going to hire a black CEO or a black manager for your company or hire 10 black young people to work at your company, you're not you're going to have to pay more in terms of the state uh, um, you know, funding because we can't continue as business as usual because that's only going to benefit those at the top. And that's the way it was designed to, to work. And so to flip that on its head, it takes a lot of maneuvering. It also takes a lot of conversations um, between public private in entities, which we don't have enough of. I was really excited this past year um, when we had folks at Amazon at the table, there was gonna be a, a mega tax on Amazon from Seattle and from the state and that kind of got squashed. But in that process, we had conversations about Amazon, you need to, to work with Seattle public schools and get 50,000 laptops out to students. And they said, okay, we committed to do that. We're committing to doing that. Um, the same thing needs to happen at a large, much larger scale moving forward. We need to say, if you're gonna, gonna be in our backyard and, and kind of be a part of the system, you need to make sure that we are making our community as part of, of your plan and your vision moving forward. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm at with it. It's like, when we're talking about equity is how, like you said, numbers, how many black and brown people did you employ or did you put in a position of power or influence um, in your company? And, you know, same thing at the government level. So I think that's kind of where we're at. Um, you know, it's a difficult process. And it's really also we don't have enough minds in that industry in um, political spaces. A lot of folks that run for politics are legal folks, attorneys. Um, uh, and, and so they kind of come from that government mindset. We need more innovative and creative thinkers in that space um, to talk about the issues that that are that are happening in our communities. Absolutely. Absolutely. So look, you know what's going on out here. 
I know from a political standpoint, you deal with it every day. How do you deal with and how do you reconcile the current political national environment, the angst between the parties, the um, the rhetoric, um, the arguing that's proliferated through media, the inability um, to work together and collectively, yet at the same time, community is supposed to get along and people are supposed to conduct themselves uh, in an appropriate manner. How do you reconcile what you're seeing play out by the old guard from our president all the way down to some of the local stuff that you've seen? What the hell is going on, man? I, I just what, what, what's your what, <laughs> yeah. what's your just straight up, you know, opinion on all that? You know, I, I personally feel like it's a lot of uh, a lot of things coming together. Um, what we're seeing is. I believe a spiritual decay of our system. Like there's not enough people, at least what I see, even at a state level, and I'm in a, a progressive, quote unquote, progressive state with a lot of democratic colleagues. And I'd be the first to tell them, there's not a lot of people that speak to kind of the spiritual needs of community. When we're talking about, we need people that are gonna uplift and empower and inspire our community. And we need people that are actually going to say, I'm gonna go to bat for you. And too much and too often I see folks that are now elected officials kind of doing what looks good, what, what um, is most popular, like you were saying earlier. Um, but there's not enough of real authentic um, representation. Mm -hmm. And um, I always have to kind of check myself for this too and do kind of a self inventory. Like, am I doing, who am I actually changing life in this policy I'm advocating for? Um, I have to think of a person, an actual real human being who's going to change, who's, whose life's going to become better because of this that's in need and not just this superficial, you know, symbolic stuff, because that's what we're seeing a lot. And that's kind of the rise of Trump. Right. And that's why we had so many people voting for him, because he promised he was going to drain the swamp. He's going to be this kind of anti neoliberal president that wasn't about, um, you know, systems. He's going to go the, the opposite of what the fabric of politics is, and we kind of see where that got, that got us. We need actual authentic people that are gonna represent the community. And on both sides of the aisle, we just don't have enough of that. Personally, I don't think, I'm glad to see, um, I personally think young people that are running for office because they seem to have a little bit more of a grasp on um, real issues and they're unapologetic about what they're gonna do, right, wrong, or indifferent. They're like, this is what I'm gonna do. Um, you see that with, with folks like uh, AOC and, you know, some of these folks, they're like, I may be wrong, but this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to do it and I'm going to take that risk. We need risk takers. We need innovators and creators in politics, not someone that's just going to take up a seat and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to come around, you know, every election cycle and, and, you know, try to get your vote. And then it's back to business as usual. And I think that's part of that kind of spiritual decay of politics. It's become this like, you know. We're just here to be here and do what looks good and feels good rather than what's real. Well, well, you know, and then was it, you know, wasn't it always that? Wasn't, isn't it always kind of had this consistency of, uh, 
business as usual, as, as you put it. Um, certainly, we've been void from being at that table for, you know, a long, at least at a significant and impactful level for a very, very long time. Um, a deep part of the culture struggle has been poured in, pouring its energy and its soul uh, and its uh, human resource into making political strides. Um, most of which, uh, you know, did not necessarily fare out um, on a variety of levels uh, for, what, for whatever those reasons are. I think what's interesting about the rise of someone like Trump and something a lot of people don't talk about is his impact and effect on young black Republicans. What has been your, ex I mean, obviously, you know, we in Washington, this is, this is a West, we, you know, we, you know, we West Coast, you don't see a lot of it here. But from a national level, um, I've been paying attention to a tremendous groundswell of young blacks that are kind of following this thread of, uh, dare I say, uh, the MAGA thread, you know, if you would. And moreover, the other supporting swell has these other, like these counterculture markets with all kinds of variety um, that are involved in the space as well. That makes you just want to kind of say, what is it? Like, let's just be real. I mean, I know who you are. We know, I know you're a Democrat. I know that you're a progressive brother, you know, and you're true and you're authentic to, to your cause and you politicize that very, very well. But what is it? If you weren't sitting in the seat, you had no seat uh, as a state rep and no seat as, you know, city council, what do you think it was about Trump that caused people to say, I'm going? You know, in, you know, in an interesting way, what I kind of my from my vantage point, what I see is like the Democratic Party over the years um, has had become kind of an elitist um, version of itself. It's interesting when you look back in history, uh, we were a party of blue collar. Um, we're going to help the everyday uh, guy get to where he needs to go. Um, and so I think what what happened, though, was a guy like Trump he came at the perfect time when there was so much um, frustration with the system and you see, you know, how elitist our system had become. And, and you know, Democrats, I think, just didn't lay out a good enough vision for the black community, specifically the black male community. When you look at the fact that almost, I think it was like 20% of black males voted for Trump. Mm -hmm not only in 2016, but in 2020 as well. Um, that's a huge number when you look at, you know, um, the, our community. And so I think he spoke to like this anti-establishment, anti-elitism, even though he may not really have represented those values, he spoke to it very well. And he did say, I'm gonna sit down with those of you that those uh, credible messengers, so to speak, in your community. I'm going to sit down with the, with with the ice cubes. I'm going to sit down with, you know, black owners um, of franchises. I'm going to sit down with with uh, certain black celebrities, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about the issues. I'm going to pardon some people um, in the black community. Um, I'm going to help get people out of jail in the black community, and those are hot button issues for us when you look at criminal justice reform. When you look at the amount of people that were put in the prison system during democratic presidencies, 
due to marijuana convictions, the drug war. And so I think, you know, this over the years, what happened was the Democratic Party did not speak to those values, yet we always expect the vote. And I think um, Trump really came at a time when um, there was just ultimate frustration with it. I mean, I talked to folks in my own family that were black that voted for Trump. Mm -hmm. And I almost can't believe it. And I'm just like, what were you thinking in my mind? But because I know like the racist um, tendencies of him and just like, I feel like, you know, we got to look past um, what, what people say and what they actually do. But I think, you know, I think he spoke to it well. And I also think our party, there has to be a reckoning around like, as we move forward, this progressive, liberal, um, you know, kind of radical, uh, so to speak, community is, we got to speak to the black community. We can't use uh, references like BIPOC. Mm -hmm. We got to say black, indigenous, and then people of color, because we have done wrong, been done wrong the most historically over years and years, and all these little phrases and feel-good words aren't going to do it anymore. We got to say, we're going to help uh, change the community, even if even if we go down trying, you know, as 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 a community, and um, you know, the Democratic Party has to change what we're going to do and have a vision for it, and really align with the vision of the Black community. So uh, that's kind of what I saw. I mean, I saw right timing. Uh, he came in at a time when we were just frustrated. We were done. Uh, we weren't seeing anything change. We were seeing, you know, um, us get killed in the streets at all time highs while we're not getting access to economic opportunities, to educational opportunities. And we were just kind of like, you know what? So that's that's kind of what I saw. Are you amongst your colleagues? I'm sure there's all kind of uh, conversations <laughs> that go on, you know, in the course of the day in, day out, uh, Trump America, right? And this dude is off the chain. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I tell people all the time, like, this cat is off the chain. And I knew he's off the chain you know, for, from the day say go, meaning that, um, you know, you're dealing with someone that is not efficient at playing by norms and, and rules. And so there's an appeal. You know, for me, we've seen it over and over again in various aspects of American culture. You take hip hop, right? Which in its outset really nerved a lot of people, you know, cause you're talking about the culture coming from, you know, you got black rock and you got funk and you got soul and you got gospel and you got R&B and these are the traditions and this is what we know. And you know what I'm saying? And you dancing and, 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 and the band is playing and blah, blah, blah. And no one was taking into account that in the drug war movement and the the the, um, the the removal of programs in schools that began in the 70s and 80s, um, instruments no longer being available for kids to learn how to play instruments and musicality, you know, just becoming a, 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 a issue of, of scarcity, right? And then this art form, this art form breaks forth where Cats learn how to take a couple of records and, you know what I'm saying, use grandpa or pops' turntables, you know what I'm saying, to get to fading and, and skipping and scratching over some beats. And next thing you know, you got this thing and cats is emceeing, they're holding down the party and it becomes that thing, right? It becomes that middle finger, it becomes that, uh, that antagonist 
it becomes that, man, we, you know what I'm saying? We ain't worried about y'all. We ain't worried about fitting in with y'all. We ain't worried about being in your choir. We ain't worried about no more whether or not we dancing according to your choreography. We out here, you know, moving bones and shifting stuff over beats that you can't even recognize no more. Um, and these things became announcements, like freedom announcements. These were protests. These were civil rights movements in and of themselves in the culture. So I kind of sat back. You know, I, you know, I'm raised, I, I'm raised with, with rich culture, rich knowledge and access to those of us that have been uh, way makers and influencers throughout American history, period. And so I know the tendencies when I hear it, you know what I'm saying? I know when someone's got that, that thing about them. And as soon as I start seeing the cat in his debates, I was like, uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> he got it. Yeah. It wasn't about the politics of it. It's horrible. It wasn't about articulating a point to people in a particular kind of way that was safe and standard. Horrible. It was the performance and the shock and the, I never heard that before. Did he say that? Did he just do, what? Right? That ability to say, I'm tired of y'all. And I think the culture, I think Americans are tired. They're burnt. They've, in every cult, they've been lied to. They've been betrayed. They've been, uh, you know, been secondhanded. And every time you turn around, there's a new hole to jump over and a new, uh, you know, ladder to climb. And then you, when you get to the top, you got to get on the bungee and, and jump because the big bad wolf is coming to get you over here. And success becomes this elusive, even though it's promoted, home of the brave, land of the free. This is the land of innovation. This is where success can happen. Anyone can become a millionaire at any given time. And it's true. But the package that comes with it, the journey that comes with it, and the, and, and the endless proverbial graveyard of dreams of so many people that for whatever whatever reason, whether they didn't have the talent or they didn't have the resource or they, this one little thing happened and they couldn't get there, right? That's what hip hop comes to talk to. That's what influencers, that's what they come to talk to. And I'm by no means articulating that Trump had that ability to be smooth about it. It wasn't smooth, it wasn't like that. But it was this thing that was like, I thought what was dynamic was, and I, my people will tell you, I call him Manhattan Don, because the Don Trump I grew up on was a limousine driving, you know what I'm saying? Three-piece suit wearing <laughs> at the party. Like yeah. this is a Manhattan dude, you know what I'm saying? He's, he's you know, he's a five-course meal guy every day. Y'all falling for the trucker hat with the, you know, with the Ford F-150 in the middle of, you know what I'm saying, middle America? Like, yo, I never saw that image of him ever in my life, right? But that kind of a guy, a Manhattan guy, is speaking to that guy? That was heavy, bro. It was. And I think that that, that right there shifted the scale, right? Because it was like, now there's a voice for this, what I guess seems to be voiceless society, or even if it's just those that just say, you know what, I'm just tired of the, 
and you got this, it's, it's, like, a, it's like the perfect concoction, which I think is what you were alluding to, right? And I want to come back to that. But then you got, you have these disenfranchised communities. You have a culture of people that come from the self-help world that we, a lot of people don't talk about it, but we talk about obstacleism all the time, conquering the odds. You know, Donald Trump's message has been in this space for a very long time, right? If you think it, you can be it. If you say it, you can play it. If, you know what I'm saying? Uh, these, these, these monikers, this, this way of life has been critical to our culture to just get through the next day a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, on the church level, we call it faith, right? And we, and, and we call it belief. Um, on the street level, you call it hustle and you call it grinding um, and you call it moving. Um, but it, but it, it permeated through so many different spaces in life that it just was the, it was the, the perfect bomb. And I think it's also little talked about that it came right after someone like Barack Obama. Yeah. Um, <laughs> where you just got this, it's just this thing that's happening. So I've been super fascinated over watching culture move. Um, and, you know, it, to me, again, I don't make America be something that it's not in, in my mind. I was studied up on it from a little child, right? So I saw what it's done to us. I saw what it's done to the best of us. Um, I saw what it's done to the best of their own. I saw what it's done to the best of a lot of things. Uh, so I, I'm under no illusion. And I don't think the community's under any illusion about its tendency to not take care of what needs to be taken care of. But I think there is an illusion um, as to whether or not one has the ability to at all. You know, just because you could say something that sounds sweet and nice, right? Which is what built the angst for the, the whole anti-PC culture, which played in his favor. Um, but now here's where, he, now, now, now here we are, right? You got this rogue billionaire, I guess allegedly, arguably, depending on who you talk to, right? Um, who, like any other MC or any other rock and roller or any other, uh, you know, moshing punk band, or anyone that knows how to influence and draw a crowd. I saw some clips. I didn't get to see the whole rally, but I just heard some clips. And it's the way he was delivering. And I remember just thinking to myself, these cats is going, they're about to lose their mind. Because they already know you didn't lost the election. Mm -hmm. Right? What do you do, man, when you know half the voting country voted for this guy? They love him. They 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 stormed Capitol Hill. It's not even funny, but yeah, that, it's crazy. Behind this cat, yeah, right. Like you was at a, like if you was at a concert or something, you know. You, you you ever seen stages get taken over at a big concert? And, Absolutely. You know, big fairgrounds and stuff. People just can't they can't control it because that's their guy or that's their girl, and they so hyped up, right? And now, what do you do with this? You know, from your level and your insight and your experience, how do you handle that situation? It's a great question. Um, one thing I also realize is, you know, if not for the pandemic and, and you know, the administration kind of fumbling um, the response to the pandemic, let's be honest, Donald Trump would be reelected. He would have been, he would have won. 
And so we have to be honest about that. You know, it wasn't the country voting necessarily for Joe Biden. It was saying, dang, like it's literally life and death now. This administration doesn't have a plan to respond to the pandemic. The pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. So we got to get somebody in there that at least is going to listen to the public health officials. Yes. So Biden, I mean, it was really like Donald Trump could have easily have been reelected after all of the, the pain and anguish caused, the racist remarks, the, the white supremacist uh, tendencies. We 30% of Latinos voted for Trump again. 20% of black people voted for Trump yes. again. Uh, I think it was 65% of white males voted for Trump again. 60% of white females voted for Trump. So, you know, the, the reality is we have a lot of work to do. And I think, you know, someone like myself, I see that and I'm like, okay, this isn't a time to put gasoline on the fire. This isn't a time to go headstrong for everything that I believe in, though we do need bold, progressive leadership in our state. I think it's a time to sit back and say, how do I speak to the needs of those most marginalized and those that I don't even know that are marginalized, um, folks in rural communities, folks in blue collar communities that haven't been spoken to in a long time and align those interests. It's sort of like building a coalition again, but based on interests and based on need and say, okay, you know, these folks need a, need a lifeboat. They need, they need something to say that they can hang their hat on and say, he did that for me right? and helped my cause or my community. Right. And so I really have to take that in consideration. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's something I think about. It's something I'm working on in, in the policies I'm working on right now. When it, when it pertains to trades and schools, when it pertains to economic recovery, small business recovery. Um, and so, you know, I, I know that, but I also know that being a labeled Democrat, I already have a label on my back, like, oh, he's just gonna, you know, he's defund the police, um, you know, uh, make sure that, uh, you know, uh, cops have a, a tougher profession, make sure that, um, you know, he's only going to do for his own community that I already know that's the label that's on my back. So I have to really know that, acknowledge that and now speak to, to those that that, you know, uh, you know, don't don't aren't really feeling that if I want to put it like that. And so I think, you know, it's it's a tough time. It really is. I think it's a time where we need people that are that are not only bold, but also can balance that with um, listening skills um, and bringing people together and um, going beyond the racial divide, going beyond the, the partisan divide and speaking to just what's real and what's on people's minds. How do you deal, you know, racism's a deep thing. It's a very, very layered, multi-layered deep thing. And kind of like what I was mentioning uh, a few minutes ago about um, black economic development, the banking sector, and who's giving loans to black businesses and black startups and, and so on and so forth. And, you, and you, know, you just know because you don't hear about it um, at all and no one's advertising it at all that there's probably not a mechanism for it. Um, but I'm anticipating that this could be, you know, it could be, it should be, uh, I'm certainly advocating that it should be the next phase of of protests and conversation and, and change. When you think about racism in a public sector, right? Just the general, the social, um, not so much the institutional piece, but the rhetoric, 
you know, the the the, the verbiage, the the uh the the nuances of things. And you have a public that is woke enough to say, if you would, I know that y'all trying to sound, you're trying to sound cool so you don't offend me, but I can still feel and hear, you know, the tendencies. Because it's like racism has always been given this brand. I've always broken it down into its genres. Racism has genres. You got, you know, being prejudiced. You got discrimination, right? Um, You got bigotry. You got these variables of styles of racism. And one thing that people don't think about, which is why I've always likened it to mental illness, um, is that it's layered in the construct of the psyche of individuals and collective groups of people. Right. Like any other addiction or a tendency, right, physiological tendency, or um, how do you... What are we supposed to do to convey at the levels of policymaker, policy making to extract racism from the psyche of lawmakers or to be able to challenge racism at the psychological level of lawmakers and representatives in, in the political landscape? What are some of the things that can be done to present to them a new way of looking at uh, looking at a people and looking at an issue that many are burnt from. Like you said, it, it's so deep rooted, it's so salient in our culture that um, in politics, it's it's like it's built on racism. You know, that's why our country was was built on the backs of, of black people, free labor, um, and 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 you know, built on top of of our of our you know. Labor and, and I think one of the things that I think about for politics now in 2021 is it's not enough to commit to anti-racist practices or to say I'm not a racist or to say, you know, I got a black friend or to say, you know, I'm going to commit to um, you know racial equity. It's about action at this point. We got to move from commitment to action. And I think part of that is acknowledging truth and acknowledging where we're at. The fact in this pandemic, more black people are dying than any other um, you know, culture. More black people are economically suffering than any other culture. Um, more black people in prisons, mass incarceration. Let's start with that truth and let's say, okay, now how do we move beyond it? Um, and sometimes we try to move to reconciliation without acknowledging the truth first. And that's just a step that you cannot miss. And a lot of elected officials try to do that. They're like, well, what are we gonna do about it? Well, you didn't even acknowledge it was a real thing. Right. And now you're on the defensive. You're, you're you're trying to say you're not a you know. And so we got to really acknowledge that first, and then move to okay, let's act on it. We have to put in place policies that dismantle the walls that were built, um, and put in policies that dismantle the system that was built on top of black people. And that is a very difficult thing to do. I think it starts with again acknowledgement, but then it moves to okay, what what are we gonna do to make sure that we don't repeat this because you know there's been times where we actually got somewhere right you know it's interesting to know as you study history that there was more black elected official during the reconstruction era right than in the late 1970s it doesn't even make sense when you think about it we have these ebb and flow in history so what were we doing back then 
that was getting us somewhere. And then what would we do? Okay, well then Jim Crow came in. And so what did we do in politically? Um, it's always been about policy. What did we do to make sure that we had progress? And then wh why did we degress? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where I'm at. I think we've degressed a lot in the last, you know, 15, 20 years for the black community. And so um, we got to get to a point where, again, we have um, real, real solid solutions. I think it can come in the form of reparations. I think that's actually something that's actually being talked about and considered by majority for the first time in the Democratic Party, at least. Um, we're talking about um, racial equity in terms of, of police reform this year, uh, you know, banning things that produce negative outcomes for our community, like chokeholds and no-knock warrants. And, um, you know, so I think we're getting to that point where we're, we're talking about the issues, which is a step. Now it's action and, and putting it in place. So um, this is going to be an interesting year. I know it's going to be interesting at the state level and the federal level, but I'm just excited to see what, what, what comes of it. Yeah, man, I, you know, I think on behalf of the people, it's like, there's, 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 there's this feel that there's not a lot of choice. Um, and I heard it, I heard it said uh, earlier, I think maybe I was listening to something yesterday, brother said, uh, you can't have any options if you don't have any choice. Um, and when you're dealing with an issue as deep as racism it doesn't present you a lot of choices for remedy right therefore the option piece right like reconciliation that, that's an option that's a component that should be consequence to okay yeah we are actually going to make this change we have deemed this this act um not only illegal but we promote and brand the penalty right you, we we have a problem, I think, in our country where we choose to highlight what we want to choose to highlight. And we know fundamentally you stand to benefit where you stand to benefit because if I just keep giving you a saying, a program, right? If I just keep hitting you with this, 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 before, before long, that's just what you're going to be expecting. And then you will be parroting, you know, that same thing. But if I keep something over here hidden and it's never talked about, it's never promoted, it's never advertised, it's never sold, it's never branded, it's never perpetually having a, a, a space in place, but it is in fact law. It is illegal to be racist. Mm, that's real. Just that one line. Mm -hmm. And I'd be baffled half the time when I'm watching these cats get up, like, yo, you get up there and tell the word, this is illegal, here's the, here's the penalty. Yep. Right, and if it is in fact police related or some of these other things that that involved the involve the assessment of analyzing other um, points of crime or processes of investigations before you can you know get to a, a resolute space uh, to create punishment. That's one thing, but just in general, to be racist is illegal, right? That's got to be branded. Absolutely. It's got to be promoted. It's got to be known. The children need to know it first. And then you just start working your way up the same way that, you know, you can advertise that there's a 29 cent burger down the street at, at such and such burger shop. You know what I'm saying? Like, whatever it is, man, put it out there. You're right. Talk about it. Let it be known that it is, in fact, a thing um, that should be uh, dealt with and right and should be recognized. And it's got to be properly sensitized into the community, right? Like, it's gotta be there, 
Like we know the Jays is there. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's just, it's a part of us now. It's been a part of us for decades now, right? Like, man, that's them Jays, boy. You know, you know what I'm saying? You, you know what it is. If you got whatever pair on, whatever series, whatever year, right? You know what it is. Why can't racism have a like this shit is whack? It needs to be talked about. It needs to be branded for what it is. Like it is. Like when you you know if you molest or rape somebody, that branded. That's disgusting. You know criminality associated with that. You murder someone. It, it's got brands on it. Yeah. Um, racism has this. It doesn't have a brand for its penalty. It's just got this culture of it happens. Right. And it right? comes in on so many different forms. If, if, it's if ridiculous. Northwest racism could be just as bad, if not worse, as Southern racism. It just looks really it different. It looks and feels different. <laughs> yeah. North, Northwest racism can smile at you and laugh at you and shake your hand and give you a hug and then close the door and go into that boardroom and say, hell no. Southern racism will give you all the hell no on the other side of the door. <laughs> you ain't getting no handshakes and smiles. And, yeah. You know what I mean? Like those new, th th that's deep though. That's a real thing. What do you do with that when there's all this mirage? But for the sake of the fact, I want to keep my job. I'm not going to let you know that I really don't like you because of the way you look. Right. I mean, it, it's like you said, we got to embed it into every part of our society. Like I think about human resource policy, right? Like with the whole Me Too movement, it's now in law, if you discriminate based on, on gender or if you sexually assault or harass, you are done. Like you're, you're in big trouble. It's now in law. We gotta do the same thing with racism. Yes. Like we gotta find ways to embed it in our human resource policies, in our political um, policies. And, we're, and at every level, not just law enforcement and policing, but everything like medical, education. I mean, sometimes half the time teachers are, are worse I mean, they they are the ones referring the kids to the juvenile system where now they're going to be violated by the system. And so we got to do it in every across the board at every level. Absolutely. That uh, brings me to a point that I want to have in every one of my episodes. Where we just go shake it up. Who's your favorite NBA player? LeBron. <laughs> Without doubt. LeBron. LBJ. LBJ. Keith James, baby. Yeah. Who's your favorite uh, football player? Uh. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go with with DK Metcalf, the new guy, okay, the young star. I I think I think he's doing a lot of work, and plus I like his style. I like I like what he's bringing okay. to the league. Yep. Okay, yeah, yep. yeah. DK got a little swag on him. Yeah, so that boy swole too. That's a big dude. <laughs> that is a big dude. That's yeah. a big dude. I think I was most impressed by DK, man. That that uh, that Cardinals game that this chase year down when yep. he chased old that boy was, down. I was, was like, dope. okay, that's what that is. Yeah, that boy nice with his man. You know what I mean? He, he he stretched him down cold too. He did. You Absolutely. Know? Okay. Who's your who's your hooper like all time? All time basketball. Is it is it is it LeBron? I mean, I would have to say LeBron, but I, I also love the local. So I gotta I gotta go with Gary Payton local. I, I grew up, you know, as a kid in the nineties. GP, the glove. Yeah. Man. I, I just loved his style, what he brought to Seattle. Obviously the Oakland swag, but he was just a real dude. I remember seeing him at the uh, the Torchlight Parade when I was like 15, 16 years old. Okay. He was in the Torchlight Parade and literally just came to the side and was just like taking photos with folks. Just like, I was like, wow, a glove. And so he's a community guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I said, I'd say Gary Payton. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, I, obviously, I don't know if they know, but you know, you're a UW, you're a Husky dude. Do you have an all time favorite Husky? 
Oh man, there's a lot, but um, Nate the Great. I mean, I know he got did wrong in that boxing exhibition, yeah. but Nate the Great, all-time athlete, just, you know, three sport, track, football, basketball. Like, I think he might be one of the greatest, if not the greatest Seattle athlete. Like, of all dude. time. Yeah, you, could, you yeah. could certainly argue it. You know what, look, you know, to the point of the fight, the whole Jake Paul thing. Um, I loved that that brother got out there. And I'm not going to front. I was one of the ones, I was one of the few that was like, man, why cats dog? You know what I'm saying? Like, I know what it is to train. I, I know what it is, martial arts, boxing, the whole nine, right? And then just being someone, and you know how it is growing up here. I, I'm a featherweight kid. We grew up fighting. Like, you just, you, you fought. That was part of, yeah. at least when I was coming up, that's what you did before all the gunplay got too serious. You had to have some scrap on you, you know what I'm saying? And the Northwest has been way overlooked. We got some scrap cats out here, dudes that'll get active real fast. And you can see that in Nate. Yeah. You can see the street scrap all over the place in him. Yeah, right? yeah. But I love that he had the nerve, man, to try to just go get in the ring and go make that happen. But what do you think about, like, there's been a lot of talk in the culture about, like, how people have responded to it. I mean, he became internet infamous <laughs> dang. on since the, since the Michael Jordan Hall of Fame I mean, sad man, face. Bro. It was like, dang, I see this meme. <laughs> on, a whole nother Nate, on a whole nother level. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and I was one of the ones who was like, man, I'll, and I'm not saying this to try to lean you in, 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 you know, in any direction, but I was one of the ones that kind of sat back like, Man, I don't like that he's being dog like that. You know what I'm saying? Hometown cat. You know what I mean? He went out there, he did his thing. Everybody, and, and of course, you know, all the boxers and MMA guys, we all, all understand it. Like, everyone gets knocked out. Everybody does, man. You know what I'm saying? Ali has been knocked out. Feel me? Foreman has been knocked out. Tyson's been knocked out. Yeah. Everybody has kissed the ground. If you've been in a fight, if you're a fighter, that's just part of it. But what do you think about how the culture responded, like in general? And 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 do you think that, um, you know, if it wasn't for the fact maybe that Nate is already an athlete, he already knows what it is to take losses, whether you're missing shots or you miss this or miss that in life, you know, you can rebound from it. I, I'm confident with that. Um, but what do you think it says about the culture that we're so quick to just flush someone down the toilet when they take a loss? of that nature. Cancel culture. I mean, this social media era we're in, I, I watched this Netflix drama the other day, The Social Dilemma about like how, you know, our minds and, and we're just so connected with like looking a certain way, looking good. And what it's doing is it's creating inauthenticity. Inauthent it's like, if Nate hadn't got out there, like a lot of social media stuff wouldn't have happened. But by him getting out there, like, he showed like he wasn't afraid. Like you said, he's willing to take a risk. And I think it just shows like in our culture at this point, like we're less likely to take certain risks because we may we may fail. Yeah. And I don't like the direction that's headed. I think I mean, it creates like this, like, OK, like I'm, I'm too cool for school type thing. Mm -hmm. And also it's like, are we really willing to get down and dirty and do the work? And they got out there and, 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 and lost. But at the same time, he said, it's interesting to see on Twitter, he said a few days later, he's going to be fighting again this summer. It's like, dang, Nate is not playing. This dude is like, yeah. he's as real as they come. And so I, I respect that about him. I was one of the ones, like you said, like, 
I got a lot of respect for Nate, but I think the culture, like we gotta, we gotta do something to get back to, okay, yeah, like let's at least have respect for the process and respect for trying to take a risk. So Yeah, and, and then like <laughs> because what's funny is funny too. Like that's like, you know, you can't like you can't uh you can't dismiss, <laughs> particularly in our culture, like, you know, you could see a cat trip and fall six ways to Sunday going down a flight of steps and it just looks funny. Right. It just it's just something. I don't know if it's an American thing. I don't know if it's a black thing. I, you know, I don't know if other cultures do this around the world, but. For whatever reason, people falling and stumbling or, or getting knocked upside the head or whatever it is, it makes you laugh. Right. Um, and, I, and I know that that's a big that's a big part of, you know, what where everyone was coming from. It just was the. The other stuff, the you know, the making fun of it, and where it's like, oh man, but you just lost the, you just lost the components of what what my man's in there doing though, like he ain't gonna quit, he's never quit anything. The dude still trains basketball, like he about to go get picked up by the Lakers right now. Yeah, he like, tried out for the Hawks a couple of years ago. Yeah, he don't have no quit in him. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So you know he's gonna come back and continue to do what he's gonna do. But I I thought that. Uh, I wanted to lean in on that, man, since, since it, it kind of came up. Speaking of which, who's your favorite boxer right now? Are you, are you into boxing? Are you watching any of the MMA stuff? I'm not watching a lot of it, to be honest. Like, uh, I, I was into boxing, and then, obviously, with the Tyson thing in the late 90s, that kind of, like, I was young. I was only, like, seven years old, but that kind of, like, I remember seeing that, like, what? And so I was like, dang, this is it's crazy. But I got back into it with Floyd. And, and Floyd doing his thing. I will be watching Floyd versus versus uh, Jake Paul's brother. That should be interesting. Yeah, that should be interesting. But you know, I'm man, excited Floyd, about that. Floyd going to do work. Yeah. He's, he, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, come on. He's going to redeem Nate. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to redeem Nate. That's for sure. The culture is funny like that. That's what we do, though. You know, Cass yeah. want to get another crack at it. We just put another yeah. dude in the ring. Um, I see that you got uh, you got Brie Tay on your shirt. Um, talk to me about that. This, this this summer was uh honestly i've been real about this even with social media posts like mentally one of the roughest times in my life i'd probably say since my grandma passed like this was just difficult because not only were were we dying but it wasn't even getting talked about the fact that that brianna was killed in march and it didn't even become a thing until we had to see like some video evidence or something coming out in June after George Floyd. It's just like, man, like that's, and you know, the black woman is the most disrespected person ever in this country. Um, and so I was just like, I went to a lot of marches and protests. And as you know, I kind of stayed away from the Chaz stuff though. I didn't, I didn't want to go down there, but yeah. I, I at least went to the protest parts and um, heard a lot of black women saying, not only was it, they felt disrespected by the police community and the white community. They, they felt disrespected by black men, too, because hmm. we didn't stand up enough for the black women that were dying in the same sense as we did for the black men. Hmm. And it really made me think. And I got into some some heated conversations with my wife, who, who as you know, has a lot of opinions. Of and course. About, That's my girl. <laughs> and, and, she, and, and she says to me, she's like, the black man, we got to stand up more. We got we, we got to become how we used to be in the sense that we're going to protect 
our people and our our women at the at the at the highest level and at all costs. So so let, let me let me break in right there though, and I, and I want to come back to the message and the theme of Breonna Taylor's life, uh, and, and and how it was tragically played out in front of the world the way it was, but on a more culturally acute level, this issue between the black man and the black woman. Um, and there's a lot of conversations around the internet. You got a lot of different podcasts where people are shining the light on it. Um, there seems to be uh, a realization that there's a disenfranchisement of some sort. That there's definitely some kind of split there. Um, and I don't know how much you've pondered it or, or, or taken it upon yourself to kind of think about really what's going on there, but it is clearly evident. And I don't know that this is born from, you know, single momism, single parentingism, um, the black man uh, being carted off into prison, uh, military, death, drugs, gangs, uh, just the general absence of the black man in culture, while also having access to privilege through sports and entertainment and different, you know, um, lanes to try to come up. Where is the break for you? Like, where, where, where is this coming from or this idea? Because I come from a black man that would go to war. I mean, we, just for my mom to go to the store, we, you know, three, four of us kids had to, we were all boys, but we had to roll with her. Like there was, there was a no excuse kind of, no one can mess with your mom. And if they do, attack. Like y'all had, we, we had full say so to deal with it however we needed to deal with it if something happened to our mother, right? Um, but you know, he, he came from a very strong father and a very strong mother and that was part of the culture, at least as far as I knew it, always had this general understanding that black men were strong, uh, ready and willing to fight uh, for their loved ones and certainly the, the women and the females in the, in the family. Um, yeah, so there's this, there, you know, to your point, this disenfranchisement, this disconnection between the black man and the black woman, you're hearing some of this spill over throughout the internet. Uh, there's a lot of shows that have popped up that are, you know, kind of addressing, uh, I guess, you know, aspects of whatever this, this deal is. Uh, I can see it on a certain level. No, not so much experienced with it. I got a deep and profound love, you know, uh, for my mom and, and, and my grandmothers and my aunties and my daughters, of course. Um, I'm curious, where did the disconnect begin? Where does it come from? Is it is it something where um, in the relationship between the man and woman, something has been split is it something in the community um in the you know professional space where opportunity has been given here or not given there is it education uh we we know that the numbers of, of black women going to the to, to uh to college and graduating um i think are are far beyond our black men what is in your eyes the variables that are that are causing this disconnect i think it's kind of all that and above like i feel like it's you know well 
black women are excelling it like you said in the educational space black men for so long have been incarcerated at higher rates as we know disproportionately disciplined in schools and i think we're now at the point where we're trying to reestablish reestablish ourselves basically in society and say you know we're here as black men and in in all spaces and with that i think we're also kind of being pushed apart from black women as well because you know now that we're, we're we're kind of like all eyes are on us so to speak front and center with that comes a lot of pressures with that with that comes a lot of uh disconnect with our own and you know we're kind of branching out and so i think you know there is a little bit of like resentment to that but at the same time i also understand the historical context like black women have always been behind the black man and so they're expecting the same thing from us now that we've made it quote unquote or we've branched out um and so i think i think we just have to re kind of calibrate as a community and talk about these issues so we can heal together you know what i mean and 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 you know one of the reasons i'm trying to represent brianna taylor is because the theme has been black men are getting disproportionately killed in the streets but black women are are also and and you know there's been a lack of 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 pointing that out and really recognizing that and and elevating that to the same level as black men um so i i you know i want to make sure that brianna taylor gets just as much justice and and thought and love as as george floyd as as you know ahmad arbery as as Freddie Gray is even so on and so on. It's same locally. I mean, with Charlene Lyles. Uh, so, I mean, I think there's just a lot of um, effort that needs to be put behind the justice for black women at the same rate as black men. I agree. I, I, I think that, that there's some, some great points you made there. And something that I've always just kind of leaned on as it, as it pertains to the struggle of our culture. Again, not, you know, not to be using you know, entrepreneurial terminology or business terms or what have you, but you think about, it goes back to branding, right? It goes back to marketing our struggle, like how our struggles being marketed amongst ourselves. You know, if we allow the system to demonize the face of a black man, you say, if you're a black man, you're a black male, if you look like this and you do like that, you're constantly branded, right? And, and, and criminal pursuits and punishment in the penal system and so on and so forth. Then there's a consistent, vibrant brand for it. Now, I'm, you know, obviously, because growing up as an athlete and growing up um, in, in entertainment culture, you know, branding is, is key. Yeah. It's key for, you know, getting attention to try to get deals or be recruited or be scouted or, or you know, cause yourself to get into a position where you can respectfully move to the next level of, of whatever it is. And in those two spaces, um, branding is very, very important. But when you think about the community, when you think about the neighborhood, when you think about uh, the power of what one can say um, through a message, you know, what do you think about the the general community coming in and maybe taking, again, another onus on for the Breonna Taylors of the world, how do we brand and raise the roof for this? Where it's beyond one protest and it's beyond 
a moment or two of picketing and it's beyond, um, you know, just kind of leaning on news media and reporters or journalists who may or may not be enthusiastically or passionately trying to approach, um, you know, what the actual story is and, and what's really wrong. And thank God for the internet and social media because it's given some landscape to, to for, you know, for the community to talk about it. But from a branding standpoint, you know, I think about what would you do if you, from a political standpoint, could properly brand what's going wrong in the community or what's not resourcefully there? What kind of comes to mind for you? Like, how, how do you, for, you know, you're wearing her face on your, on your shirt. I love it. And it's dope. And it's got some style on it. But it's a painful story. And it's a painful reminder. And it adds um, to the tragedy, but it opens kind of a door to say, let's not forget, right? Yeah. Um, what kind of effect would that have, you know, in your world right now politically if you showed up and, and, and had that on at, at a round table that's dealing with political issues? What, what effect do you think it, it actually has? It has a major effect, especially in light of the fact that, you know, like you said, appearances and, and um, it's kind of like, it really feeds to this, what's happening with social media, this culture around, um, you know, the look of stuff and, and what, what we see uh, feeding to the senses of people right now in the community. And so right now, you know, when I'm on Zooms as a state legislator, my background, I got, you know, Dr. Cornell West books. I got, um, you know, photos of Malcolm X on the wall. I'm wearing this shirt because it's bringing that cultural aspect into yeah. my message, which is about justice. It's about love. Um, it's about um, racial reckoning, um, which we need in this moment. But I also think like it's it's uh, that concept. I think LeBron has kind of encapsulated this as well with the more than the athlete with this. I promise school the vote more than a vote, you know, all the things he's doing in different aspects. And it's the same politically. You know, I don't need to be in one category and say, you know, I'm just doing, um, you know, political issues, but I'm also touching cultural issues, economic issues, doing the podcast here. Like it, it, it touches so much more. And then that's important because everything is this intersectionality and everything really is um, integral. It's part of, of an overall um, shift in our, in our culture right now that we're seeing. And hopefully the shift that I'm trying to make is in a positive direction by saying um, I see and I hear what's going on and I take notice of it and it's part of who I am and it's a part of the policies I'm trying to bring. Um, I think, you know, one of the bills I'm focusing on this year is, is banning no-knock warrants, which of course that was part of, you know, the process that led to Breonna Taylor's death. Um, and so I think, you know, having, it's the Breonna Taylor no-knock warrant bill or something like that to say this is about, you know, a person that um, was, was taken her life was taken and taken from us. And she was a black woman, a strong and powerful black woman. And we need to uplift that um, in the policies that we make and in the cultural shifts that we make, hopefully. What do you say? What do you say to, and I'm just playing agitation right now, and, I, and, I, and I'm playing contrarian right now. What do you say to those who are passionately opposed to any notion of defunding the police or the idea that 
Um, police can be looked upon, again, maybe going back to this branding notion, looked upon as if they are inept or incompetent um, uh, or that somehow they're being disrespected, uh, you know, for being challenged. What do you say to those those families who, um, you know, there's a dad out there on the beat or, or, or mom out there on the beat um, wearing the badge, uh, you know, for those that have to depend on them, the different sectors and circuits of life that needs the support of law enforcement um, for non-emergency issues, for non-hysterical uh, situations, for things that don't, that are not, uh, you know, aligned with crime and so on and so forth. Um, how do you reconcile this relationship between the change, the necessary changes that are being advocated uh, with police reform versus the feeling and the dependency of certain ones in the community that see the police in a different regard? Yeah, that's a great question because like you said, if I were to pass out right now, we'd, we'd be calling the police calling to come, you know, someone to come help me. I mean, I'm gonna try to get you right. You know what I'm saying? I got right. a couple skills, you know what I'm saying? Right. I'm gonna try to get you right. But yeah. that 911 is getting dialed up. Exactly. Yeah. But at this, you know, and, and so um, what I always lead with when I'm talking policy around police reform is I believe the vast majority of officers do their job with honor to the profession. They do their job well, but um, what I've come to understand with policing and talking with law enforcement, with community, is that bad cops are a result of bad policy. And if we don't put, just like bad teachers are a result of bad policy as well, if we don't put policies in place that hold people accountable, um, it's just like when you're a kid, if, if, if you're never told no, you're gonna keep doing whatever you wanna do in the wrong thing at times because you're never told no, you're never punished. And so if we have standards in place, it's gonna hold accountable those that are not adhering to um, what the majority of police officers are adhering to in their profession and making, you know, you know, the system look bad. And the reality is the system is messed up because we've allowed so much to kind of go um, and turn a blind eye to it politically. Um, that's why in our state, I found out the other day, the last officer that was convicted of any uh, deadly force crime in the state of Washington was 1938. And, you've, and there's been so many cases but yet the last one convicted by um, the justice system was 1938 until last year, um, there was an officer in Auburn that, that was the first one since then, 82 years. So that, that tells you a lot. That tells you that we were not accountable as political system to um, our communities. We also don't seem to care about the cries from the black community for decades that there needs to be accountability measures in place and we need to change the way policing's culture has become very, very militaristic, very divided from community. You don't have that neighborly good cop, guardian of community aspect anymore like there once was. It's become a warrior cop mentality. Um, military, unfortunately, is the biggest recruitment platform for officers at this point. Um, I think like 70 some percent of officers come directly from um, war combat. And so that, that tells you something. That tells you the culture has changed and we need to make sure that we are adhering to what community needs because that's preserving and protecting human life should be the, the fundamental value of law enforcement. And I believe a lot of folks go into the profession wanting to do just that. But once you're a part of the system, just like me, 
once I'm in the political system, if I just vote for something just because I'm a Democrat, well, then I shouldn't be there um, just because the rest of the party's going that way. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what's become of, of law enforcement. It's like you have to go this way or you're not going to fit in. Right. What is what is your um, how would you explain defunding the police? What what does that mean for you in, in your position? Um, I think for me, it means reallocation. It means reinvestment and reimagination of a system that the community has figured out takes up the vast majority of local jurisdictions budgets. So like here in Federal Way, for example, it, it's 60% of our budget is, is policing. Um, and so the communities figured that out by now being part of the, the system the, at the table and being part of the system, seeing it and figuring that out, just like in education, they see how much money goes into it that in, in, in law enforcement, I mean, we spend so much money. And so the problem though is um, it's a highly uh, regulated and standardized um, profession and things need to be a certain way, just like the military. And so we need to figure out a way that um, reallocation or reimagination doesn't just mean pulling the ground from under a system that operates a certain way. And we want our officers to, 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 to operate a certain way, but we also don't want our community to, to not get anything. And so we need to change the concept. And I think defund the police, unfortunately, has become a hashtag and a um, kind of a uh, social um, uh, way of, of, of thinking versus like, okay, where is it actually gonna go? How's it gonna help our community? And so, um, you know, I, I always say like reimagination, reinvestment, I think is important. For example, um, if we are going to want to be a part of the decision making process for law enforcement, um, I believe in community oversight. I believe community needs to be part of working in partnership with law enforcement whenever there's a public complaint or use of deadly force. Um, there needs to be money for that. We need to be paid for our time because so many times institutions ask our community to do stuff for free, come and speak for free, come and uh, give our thoughts and ideas for free, sit on this board as the one black member for free. If you're a part of community oversight board, um, you need to be paid for your time and for your energy and for your, your thinking and thought partnership. And so that's a part of defunding the police in a sense. It's a part of reallocation to community to help leverage the best possible ideas for, for public safety. Right. So you're so you're really talking about in this reimagination, in this reinvention space, you're really talking about forming what I call strategic partnerships. I go into uh, business ideology in the community from um, a strategic partnership mentality. Um, part of that is because I'm sensitive to branding and verbiage and, um, you know, h- how something comes off um, from a marketing standpoint, uh, not speaking as an artist right now, but just. You know, someone who knows how marketing and the dynamics there uh, work, you know, to say defund the police obviously causes outrage on one side. On another side, it's not that it's, I think, an excitement. I think it becomes, uh, what are we going to do with this? Is this even real? Um, Because you got to remember, for every time that the community gets politically hyped up, right, on a hot topic button or on an issue, and hyped up, hyped up. Then you got this kind of like slightly sloping 
road of once what once was excitement that moves into ah uh, here we go more bureaucracy more red tape more right um and ultimately maybe something gets done maybe it doesn't and what ends up getting left out of it is the real uh integrity of the issue, meaning like, here are the players that really gotta be involved. Here's what really needs to be formulated. And here's how we're gonna go about doing it. Here's what the effects are going to be. So I think through strategic partnership, you find a way to start to mind map and walk down that corridor a little bit differently where there is a unification of the goal um, versus this, you know, this indifference um, and, and this edge, because like you said, you fall out in your chair right now, that 911's getting called. I think some people over here think, well, damn, if something happens to aunt so-and-so in the middle of the barbecue and I got to call 911 and, <laughs> you know, my homie across the street answers the phone, that's not going to be a good look. I need to know I got a professional on the other end that's getting ready to come out to deal with all these other first response, you know, issues, right? But then at the same time, when you see brutality after brutality and killing after killing and unarmed man, unarmed black woman, uh, unarmed black child, unarmed, unarmed, unarmed. Yeah. And you got to say to yourself, well, damn, I mean, something's off. What, what's going on here? And I know personally from being in the local uh, NAACP, I-940 was a big deal. Um, my sister girl, Terry Rogers Kemp, kind of helped uh, narrate and put that thing together and, and author uh, that bill. And so it's like, what are some of the things that are coming out of when you say defund the police? Is that how, how's that being, you know, actualized? What was born from it? Or is it still kind of like just a hot topic, hot button thing to say? It's, um, and even, uh, the folks that fought so hard for that initiative, I-940, they understand it's still in its infancy stage. It's still early. Um, there's not enough data to say whether it's working or not, but I do know that it sparked this feeling that we need to move towards community for the first time in our in our state's history. We're moving towards community rather than solely law enforcement. No matter what, they're going to get what they want. The labor unions control everything. We're in the pockets of 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 law enforcement, and we're moving towards no community has enough voice and power um, at this point in society to say, we need to do some things differently. And that includes funding. And so a part of the policies I see being, being put forth this year is, these are our accountability standards. If you don't do these things, you will not get funding from the state anymore. And then, so that's saying, well, that's putting, <laughs> that's putting the pressure back on local departments and sheriffs and, and chiefs to do the right thing and put protocols in place so that they can get funding. Right. Uh, and so I know that that's putting some 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 pressure on them, but it's also putting more accountability. I think that we're going to see some positive outcomes in the future. Got you. Who's your favorite artist? Favorite artist besides besides you, my brother, I got to I, I got to put you in there. But uh, um, I really like uh, honestly, I'm going to go. A little bit old school, a little bit. I like Bob Marley. Okay. I listen to a, to a lot of reggae, okay. old school, um, hip hop wise. I love D Smoke, new okay. rapper. Um, I've always been a fan of Pac, obviously. Yeah. Um, 
And then I also love Luther, Luther Vandross. I'm kind of okay. all over the map. I'm okay. The map. So you got you a nice little cachet of, of, uh, of music profile. You got a nice little palette jumping off. Um, aliens. Do you believe? Is there something <laughs> the out there? Right there, there, brother. Look, somebody said, I, I think I want to, I think I saw, uh, I want to say it was Joe Rogan or somebody. Somebody was making mention that there's uh, this in the new bill, um, uh, the COVID bill, I believe, that there was going to be a um, an aspect of that where sometime over the course of the next several months, disclosure processes are going to be happening. Now, look, I'm a deep cat. I'm a spiritual dude, so I ain't even gonna lean in on my stuff. This thing is a never-ending ball of God's massive majesticness as far as I'm concerned, and whatever's in it is in it. But from a just straight zero-point level, right? Right here, we in the Fed, it's hometown. A lot of cats don't have these conversations um, in environments like this, right? Have you ever heard of a report of a UFO or alienic activity in the Fed? Not in the Fed. None? Mm-mm. None that you know of? Not that I know of, at least. Is it talked about amongst the political constituency on a local and state level? Have you heard of it? I have not. I mean, I've heard of, honestly, like the, the biggest thing that I guess closely is, is the line with that is um, the fact that we have not gone back into like the space. I know in like the 60s, the space movement was a big thing. And there hasn't been a lot of push for that in the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years. And I wonder why I think, I think, you know, there's probably a lot of reasons, but I think at the local level, there's been like talk about funding for that and what that looks like moving forward, because there's still, it's still a thing. It's still a thing that people talk about and believe in, but it's, it's, it hasn't been, you know, it hasn't been adopted in a while. Yeah. I'm 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 uh, I'm uniquely fascinated by the fact that some there's there was uh, you know uh, coverage allotted to this in in the COVID bill, and that there's this this idea that through disclosure uh, that some of these classified uh, documents are going to show where there's been interaction or accounts or so on and so forth, but you never really, it's always, you know, it's, it's nationalized, it's globalized, right? Like the whole phenomenon of it. You never really break it down to a local level. Like what about local law enforcement? What about local city councils and city governments and, you know, the state representatives and so on and so forth? Is anyone in Washington state dealing with the UFO phenomenon? And you're telling me you, you, you haven't heard nothing. It's not something that's- I haven't. I have uh, not. No, I guess we're too caught up on uh, climate justice. And you know what's interesting is I feel like our state we're kind of in we're we're an interesting state. I'll say that we we touch on a lot of the issues that I think are kind of pushed aside. Like, oh yeah, we'll get to that at, from a national standpoint. Um, but our state really likes to delve into it. So I'm actually surprised like that's, that hasn't came up, at least to my knowledge, at the state level, because we, we're kind of a state that gets into like all those issues that um, aren't at top of mind from a national standpoint. Sure. Um, but Washington State's been known to for historically kind of be on the forefront of like certain issues progressively. And so um, 
climate climate is taking up a lot of time and energy, which I wonder, you know, why our community hasn't been a part of that discussion too. That's a whole nother topic. That is, it is. It, it's just it's just something I kind of got my pulse on a little bit, just just watching how that's gonna now. I just found it just crazy fascinating that there was dollars allocated for that and energy allocated for that in this COVID relief bill. Let's let's talk about COVID. Um, obviously, on a day in day out basis, um, you know, there's there's the news and media coverage. What are you seeing locally in the dynamics of the pandemic? Um, and who is it affecting the most? And, and, and what are the right now resources to provide some degree of, you know, remedy, if you would, in dealing with it? So this, this is going to be one of the most fascinating years, I think, just like 2020 was in, in ways we probably wish wouldn't happen. But 2021 with this COVID vaccine rollout is going to be very interesting because First of all, there's a lot of distress with it, and there should be, um, especially within the black community, communities of color, because we've historically been kind of the guinea pigs for a lot of, it's interesting that a black woman from Jamaica was the first person in our country to take the vaccine mm -hmm. and not like a high level um, aficionado around public health or something like that, but she was the first one. I think that says a lot about our country. But I also think there has to be an education and awareness around where we're at with this with this pandemic. Um, I think to some people they see on TV 300 something thousand dead and it's like, oh, wow. And we've kind of become in a strange way, like immune to what's happening. Mm -hmm. But it touches so many communities and it touches our community right here in Federal Way. I mean, we in South King County, I think Federal Way is like third or so. Um, in terms of like COVID uh, cases. We're not as high in deaths, which is interesting, but cases, um, maybe because we're a younger city and so younger people aren't dying as rapidly. So we have more cases, but not as many deaths. I don't know, but um, I've heard from the King County level, actually the King County executive just announced yesterday that um, the Warehouser King County site where they're currently doing testing is gonna be one of the two South King vaccination sites okay. um, once it's widely available, probably in April. Um, so it'll be right here in Federal Way. And then um, also a school site is going to be identified. So one of the schools will be a vaccination site. But the problem is, our community is going to take the vaccine. Is there going to be enough trust by that time to where that we could actually get people to take it? And um, I've been asked personally by members of our community, if you take it on Facebook Live, I may consider taking it. And I'm like, dang, I mean, I got to think about that. But at the same time, I mean, that's how it should be. I mean, elected officials are gonna have to step up and be leaders in this moment. And if we think that this is the route that we need to go, we gotta show the community this is the route to go. Um, but I can't say for sure, honestly, right in this moment, if, if, if it is, I gotta see more. How do you reconcile what seems to be a huge community of distrust? Um, you hear a lot about you know, why is Bill Gates involved? Why is uh, this, yeah, you know, uh, why is so-and-so involved? Why are black people affected more than anyone else? Um, why did Trump drop the ball? Did Trump drop the ball? 
Um, where would one place blame? How do you reconcile a conspiracy-driven community that has open access information and knowledge um, about fumbled balls before, um, all of America's wild, crazy mishaps, all of its unfortunate, uh, you know, self-made tragedies that have cost, you know, in some cases, millions of lives. Um, and whether you want to talk to Skeegee um, or whether you want to talk, you know, black women in, in, in birth and in, in the projects done on them. <laughs> you, 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 you have too much there yeah. for people to readily trust. So what are the conversations happening to try to develop trust within the community? And at what point does the political and power landscape, I know it's loaded, there's a lot of in this question. Yeah. Because um, you got members in the community that are like, you know, man, I'm not coming to you to tell me how to live. Like, I know how to live. So you can't just come tell me that this is this and that's that and that's that and I'm supposed to run off to the mountain like, oh, because political Susie said it, we're all good. You know, no pun intended to you know anybody with that name that's in politics. But you know, my point is, is that people are tired of this idea that because you're in a position, you may or may not know what's, you know, what, what's best for them and they're supposed to just follow suit. I think a big part of the distrust in the vaccination concept is really lies there. And is there really any info there? Where's the data? How long does it really take to get actual data? What's going on with, with, uh, with you and your position and your colleagues right now as it pertains to trying to just address trust building um, in this space? We're still figuring it out. Um, and I know as communities of color and members of color in the legislature, we're having to bring our own lived experience and what we're hearing in our community to the state level and have some really difficult conversations. And um, I, hopefully the governor wouldn't mind me saying this, but we had a conversation as a black members caucus with him the other day about this vaccine rollout. And one of the things he says is education and awareness is important. We gotta get communities to, to trust the vaccine. And he says, maybe we get you know a celebrity like a Russell Wilson type or someone to come and, and work with us on getting education out there. And we had to tell him, I mean, that's great. And that, you know, we appreciate the, the thought and that actually makes a lot of sense, but we have to, it's deeper than that. We have to address the historical part and the harm done to our communities from the government uh, and from a public health standpoint. We have to say some type of, make some type of statement. It has to be from maybe the governor or, or someone else and say, we've, there's been a lot of harm done. We understand that. We're getting the data. We are, we are trying to create incentives um, that make sense for communities in taking the vaccine. And we just have to think deeper. It can't be as shallow as having a, a, a celebrity taking the vaccine on TV and now all the black community is gonna do it. <laughs> yeah. We gotta go deeper than that. Yeah, that, that, that'll, that'll, be a, that'll be a red flag of, of <laughs> yeah. a whole nother sort right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, little rapid fire. Best memory of your mom? Childhood. Best memory would 
definitely be my mom is, is interesting she was a career lady and in, in the navy um you know when i was young got out of the navy and worked for state farm for, for 15 20 years she's a career lady mm -hmm. she never really wanted to have kids per se but of course she met my dad who could have had five six seven kids <laughs> and he'd have been cool in that change and she literally um when i was about 11 years old uh, my brother was born uh, he was born premature and she quit her job quit her career became a stay-at-home mom full-time and from when i was 11 to graduating high school she was at every single basketball game uh track meet she was like the team mom person bringing homemade chili and, and and food to the practices and she totally switched so it's not just one moment but she totally switched her life around yeah for us as, as me and my siblings and so i, I just have so much love and gratitude yeah. for her for being there because that's like that made all the difference in the world to have your mom at, at everything like that that's huge favorite of pops pops hardest working man in the world uh, <laughs> I, I went to a lot of job sites with him and and saw, you know, him. And another thing I learned that I think helped me in politics was to see him in business. He had his own uh, residential painting business. Yeah. And to see him walking to, to neighbors and, talk, and, and talking and negotiating, doing estimates mm -hmm. and how he handled that whole thing. And he could do it with anyone. And he always was about integrity and doing the job right. I never met. You know, if he said he's going to put four coats on your house, it's four coats. It's a lot of paint <laughs> and he's going to do it and he's going to do it right. And so um, just seeing his hard work ethic and uh, yeah, absolutely hardest working person I know. That's beautiful. Talk to me about your wife. Oh, man. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. You you know you know Epi. She's she's um, she is a phenomenal lady. Oh my gosh. She Love is. her. She is. She uh, so so my wife is probably um she's a lot more uh I would say uh open to new things than me. I'm kind of set in my ways. And and she always says I'm kind of an old soul like you know old people they're this is what they do. This is their routine. She's yeah. like She's opened my eyes to so much more. Um, actually, my first time traveling out of the country was with her. And she had been to so many places. She was a, grew up in a military household, been around the world, mm -hmm. around the States. And she, you know, really adventurous, um, likes to learn about new things, likes to debate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Debates yeah. me probably every night about stuff. So she's my <laughs> biggest critic. But also my biggest fan. She is she's she's amazing and um, you know, doing her thing in, in health and medicine. But um she she's opened my eyes to a lot because she's like, you gotta live, enjoy the enjoy the moment. Yes. Not just think about what's next. Cause I'm the type of person that's always thinking about tomorrow, the big picture, like what can we do next? And she's like, No, like live right now. Like put that down and, and actually experience and live life. That's right. A little more. So that's what I appreciate about her. That's awesome. She's yeah. She's definitely got that vibe. Well, your whole everything you said does not surprise me at all. Just the, what I know about your mom, your dad, uh, and Epi, your wife, and of course I've got to meet the siblings and everything like that. I love the construct you come from um, because you just number one you don't see it a lot. It's so many broken families uh, in the black community, um, but you also miss out on the old soul of family. And that's what I feel when I get around you and your people. The soul of the family is there. 
um, and it's genuine, you know, and and uh, I've had some some really cool conversations with your pops uh, and, and and your mom as well. But certainly pops, man, he's a he's a cool dude. Uh, it's been great to watch you become what you've become. And I know, you know, your future is as wide as the sky. But real quick, before we peel off, what is what is the ultimate destination for you? you know, in your political profession? Are you, are you gonna stay at home? Do you see DC in the future? Are you gonna end up at the UN? What, like, what, <laughs> what's happening? Where, where's, where's Jesse Johnson's future gonna be? Oh, man, I, I uh, as you know, I live my life based on calling and, and I got called into, you know, going into education, then I got called into public service. Um, I really feel called to serve this state and this community, at least for, um, I would say a couple terms. Um, and I know people are always thinking, what's, what's the next thing? I, I really want to live in, in the moment and try to try to do as much as I can for our community here because I just love the thing about the state that I love is, is it's, it's close enough to where you still see people at the grocery store. You're still out in the community, but also you can actually make real change and actually bring back resources for the community. But uh, I'm not going to lie. I've been to D.C. I've, I, I, uh, I interned for Congressman Adam Smith when I was in college and uh, got a chance to see DC a little bit. And um, I could see that too at some point. So I'm not gonna put it out of the picture down the road. Hey man, look, your future is bright, brother. Uh, there's a lot of people that are uh, watching you. And um, there's a lot of people that are happy about your approach. Uh, you're not the typical Democrat right now. You have an appeal for a lot of different sectors. And I'm not saying everybody's in love with you. I'm just simply saying that you have something about you that says you can authentically tap into these different spaces and places and you actually do give a damn and you will put forth effort uh, to make things happen. So I say that to say that I'm in a, a huge state of gratitude and appreciation that you are actually my kickoff inaugural first show uh, for this podcast. And I want to, you know, humbly honor you, man, even though you're my little bro, um, I'm humbled um, by what you're doing and that I'm able to uh, support you in whatever way that I can. And I want to take this moment to tell you that I thank you for being a part of my life. This is Shia's Law, The Life Show 2021. Here we come, baby. Let's go.